camera speeds. Hey, Mark. Hello and welcome to the Focus Polar at Work podcast. I'm your host, Dennis Kunell, and today I will be talking to one of the great German Focus Pullers, Aurel Wunderer. Aurel is based in Munich, and we will talk about what it's like to find out when a feature you've worked on has just won an Oscar, how Aurel might have contributed to the new Airy High Five in a somewhat significant way, and we'll chat a little bit about the good old glorious days of 35mm film. I should also mention that this episode, again, is a little longer than usual. Uh, also, I would like to apologize in advance. On the day of the recording, I had construction going on right outside of my apartment and Aurel has had somewhat bad internet reception at the secret location where he's currently working. Uh, and all of that has led to some audio quality issues. Oh, and the F-bomb may have been dropped a couple of times, so you have been warned, but now please Enjoy today's episode of the Focus Pillar at Work podcast. Aurel, thank you very, very much for being my third guest on today's episode. Uh, I'm very excited to get to talk to you. Um, you've been, you know, mentoring me a, a little bit, usually through Instagram, uh, ever since I moved back to Germany in about November 2020. And uh, I'm really looking forward to having this conversation in person with you. So um, thank you very much for being on the pod and welcome. Thank you very much for having me. All right. Um, well, you know, let's start with uh, the obvious. How and when did you get into this industry? And uh, was this something that you always wanted to do? Did you, you know, stumble upon it? How did you get to where you are today? Uh, I started with a black and white photography course in my last year of school, that was in 95, and then um, kind of by accident did some work of the holidays in the camera rental place, uh, then the owner offered me an apprenticeship and I started that in 97, and then after that, from 99 on, I started working as a freelance Okay, and did you um, did you did you go the you know the the normal route starting as a as a loader uh, back in the day, then then second, then first, or did you did you end up firsting quickly? Like how did you how did you get there? I did do some you know the odd jobs as a as a grip or something in the beginning, and then I was also loading for a while, um, and then I got to be in the right place at the right time met uh, someone, a first assistant who took me on many commercials and uh, there was a chance by the end of 99 where he even allowed me to pull focus on B camera on a small McDonald's commercial um, and so that I would say is the, the paid job I did as a focus puller but then the transition to where I was actually focus pulling for money only was uh, in 2002. Okay, so you made that transition fairly quickly, um, and so you learned pulling focus, you know, in the good old days, um, especially, you know, working uh, on on commercials. I assume it was all 35 uh, millimeters back in the day? Yeah, that was kind of an, an enforced uh, quick um, <laughs> rise up the ladder. I, I mean, I did, you know, work as a second for three years, but but not like some actually do it professionally for five, six, seven, eight, or maybe 10 years. Um, 
And yeah, most of the commercials and also the, the films we did, they were on 35 millimeters. Uh, luckily, I got to enjoy a lot of that. And um, yeah, I, I learned focus pulling by a lot of uh, blood, sweat and tears and then follow focus and lots of measuring and drilling distances and uh, learning, 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 being thrown in at the deep end. And so did you, because, you know, for me, uh, I've been of, yeah, even I think my very first project um, where I was a set runner, basically, for a big commercial, that was also the only time that I saw a Airy 435, I believe it was at the time. Um, it was a, a long, I think it was for Playmobil, um, uh, it was a commercial series that went on for about two weeks. And I was just amazed by seeing the analog uh, technology. And uh, like I said, that was my only project involving a 35 millimeter. And then it was Alexa from there on out. Um, how, like, you know, just for, for us young ones who don't know much about film, how was it different back then? Was there, I mean, obviously you had to measure, you know, you had to really trust your marks. You had to trust that you're, um, that your lenses were correct, um, all of that. And then, you know, if, if an actor didn't hit their mark or if, you know, whatever the dolly grip kind of messed up and uh, he didn't, you know, get that mark, um, you had to really just, I don't know, just, you know, you, you couldn't measure that. You were, uh, you, you just had to deal with it as it happened. Um, how... How was that? Like, how, how big is the pressure when you do that? Um, and, you know, you don't really see if you messed up or not. So, you know, you, you will only know that you messed up when you see the dailies the next day. Uh, how was that? Um, I would say that was a lot of adrenaline, for sure. Okay. Um, sometimes if your stomach cramped up too hard, you knew you were off. Um, now, you did develop an, a sense for distances very quickly. And then, of course, you tried all sorts of things to really, um, you know, prepare for any kind of a possibility of what could go wrong. But like it is in, in shooting with film today, it's it's kind of still the same. I didn't have any kind of uh, ultrasonic distance measuring device. I could focus bugs in ERT back then. It was really just... Uh, observing the marks, learning a lot about the actors in terms of their posture and their body tension and is it different in the intensity they act with now compared to maybe a rehearsal or a blocking. So would they overstep that mark or you learn very quickly in, in whether an actor actually tends to hit the mark no matter how hard and much they play an act or you know, are they prone to not? Hitting mm. their marks, and is that something that you still that you still use today? Like that technique that you really like, you know, you don't just look at the monitor, you don't just trust the rangefinder at all times. You you still look up and like see, you know, how how does an actor move? When do they move? When does the operator start moving? Stuff like that. I, I find it very hard to uh, pull off of a monitor only. Like if uh, whenever it's possible, I do want the monitor as close as possible to the set. Um, I don't use a big 13-inch. I, I, yes, I rely on a rangefinder quite a bit, but um, I still want to see what happens right in front of me. You know, when you've got somebody who's very skilled at working on a mini jib, maybe, 
then the mini jib starts traveling ever so quietly and slightly and, and if you only look at your monitor you are too late when you mm. finally realize that it has moved by about four inches already maybe true um because i experienced that myself uh every now and again um and i yeah. in in those moments i i i rely heavily and i mean almost too heavily i uh, i'm not entirely sure uh for some scenes i'm not entirely sure what i would do without my uh scenario um but so how do you because you own a scenario uh focus park system yourself um, so how do you incorporate yeah. that? So you, I, I, I know because you showed me um, when I met you last year in, in Berlin um, when you were uh, prepping for a movie. You showed me your setup and you do have a, um, I think it's a, it's a 502 Bright or High Bright or whatever they used to call them back then. Um, yeah. And uh, so you have that uh, usually on a WCU4. Um, and how... So how how much do you rely on the CNRT, um, and when do you not rely on the CNRT? Like, in, do you, do you use it for movement only, um, and when do you tend to look at the monitor, and and how do you use that monitor? Um, since I've had the CNRT for the last three years, I've definitely learned to um, work with it and love it a lot more than its predecessors, just because it is so much more accurate and. Um, To me, it's just the new industry standard. So um, I, I do use it during blocking. If you ever get a rehearsal, for instance, also, yeah, you can take measurements by that. Um, if possible, I do like to at least mentally have some marks and know where the actors are going to be. Um, I, you know, it just makes for such and so much better focus pulling. Um, when you kind of know where to turn to and not only rely on reacting to what you see on the monitor and then you, you have these harsh focus pulls that just maybe end too abruptly and yeah. it, it's not a smooth focus pulling, it's not a nice pull. It, it will draw your attention to the pull itself when it shouldn't. Um, so obviously sometimes you still get erratic measurements that will always happen and, and you do have to know your distances. I find personally, I still drill distances. I still um, will, you know, every once in a while, at least not as much as I should probably, but walk around and with a laser or a tape measure and just drill. Just what would my guess be? And then funny enough, often the one where you don't think least and where you just react and know the distance is much more accurate than when you try to overthink things yeah. as with so many things in life um so but that for a lot of motion i do use the seniority and then sometimes when it gets too close then you just have to look at the monitor i don't use the, the 502 just as a small five inch monitor and many times i will punch in by a factor of one four or maybe even by a factor of two um just to really be able to tell whether it's in focus or not because there are distances the differences we all know them of uh, which eye which part of the eyelashes mm -hmm. exactly that's that's where i think the monitor is uh is a godsend really where you can just see okay like what am i looking at is it is it the eyelashes is it the actual eye um sometimes you get this weird like three-quarter angle from the left or right side and you kind of have to make a decision is like which which eye am i picking here is it like the the eye that's you know like closer to the camera um 
and sometimes like the, the the slightest move of the head by the actor or the actress um, means that you know you've you've lost it already um, and I think that's where we need a monitor these days but I also wonder like back in the day when you were shooting on film did they just you know were they just uh, kind enough to give you like uh, a better stop to work with like did they give you a four when they were trying to do uh, those kind of close-ups or you know how did you how did you guess that because I think you know there's really like a tiny tiny nod of the head um, sometimes means you're out of focus um, yeah <laughs> so remind me to go back to to use of monitor later on because I do think that is essential to and, and a very important tool but yes back in the times well luckily when I learned uh, in the beginning as long as we were shooting outside we were at an 11 or even 11-16 split or something like this okay. um, because that was just the DP it was a style it was not especially for me but it was kind of like okay well when you're outside you just that's the stop you get because Because that's the sound you've got, and you've got. And when you're inside, uh, that's a different matter. And and on the inside, in the very beginning, yeah, I sometimes you know would get maybe a two eight. Um, but then when I had learned enough and I proved that I could do it, the stop would open wider and wider and wider. And since I started learning on the super speeds, well, yeah, sometimes we shot on a one three, wow. and that was just that was brutal. <laughs> But luckily, I had very good mentors. I had a very good DP. I had a very good first AC who stepped up to operating so that I could just focus on myself even. And, and they were very wise and could help me a lot All right. with that. And, and so the learning curve was fast, but I'm yeah, definitely thankful to them for giving me that opportunity and also for teaching me so much. Oh, I'm so jealous that you uh, got to learn all this. I, I wish I would have... Uh... I would have started just a little bit earlier to get like the last of the glory film days to actually, you know, learn what it's like and to see the the kind of discipline that you needed back in the day uh, when shooting on film, because I think most of it is just gone ever since we switched to uh, the digital uh, era. And uh, it seems like it's just like, uh, just, you know, we just keep rolling. Just you do like 17 takes in, in one and it doesn't really matter anymore. And it's like, nah, but sometimes <laughs> yeah, it would be great so if we would just rehearse and take our time and stuff um all right yeah, let's, let's get definitely but yeah sorry go ahead that, sorry that, that was just one thing um, i mean we're talking about shooting mostly in, in germany where there's hardly any film being shot except for our commercials mm. um when you look abroad into the bigger productions there's still a lot or again a lot being shot on film like bigger jobs there's definitely a lot a lot of film projects yes and i think um And I think really, if you, you know, if you know how to pull um, on 35 um, and you're uh, good at it, then I think, uh, yeah, you will, you know, you, you're, you're one of a kind. You're almost a unicorn at this point because I don't think there's too many um, really skilled ACs that, that know how to pull um, on 35 uh, and do it well on top of that. True, but you can learn it. You can definitely learn it. Like I, <laughs> I had to learn it quickly. I don't think that I am someone super special. I think that it's something that you just learn, and some are very talented at it right away, and some just drill and learn. And just need a little bit longer. 
all right uh let's go back to that monitor then um uh, uh, tell me um yeah. because i'm really curious um ever since uh evan Luza and i talked about this what are your uh what are the settings that you're using are you uh using the peaking uh if you do at, uh, at what level do you use it do you use the uh, small hd focus assist what what is your go-to there um, that really depends on the lens, on the length of the lens, on the kind of the lens, how how creamy is the lens itself, how sharp is it. Um, I'd have to adjust that. And also, I have three different pages of different settings that I would go to. I, I do have them set to a very low level, um, peaking uh, and, and the focus assist. And, and I think color is mostly in pink so that it stands out <laughs> if mm. something is in focus. But I, I definitely want to keep it to a, a minimum um, just so that you see a bit of, of um, a gleam on the, when you do get it in focus. But um, what I meant with the monitor that is far more interesting and important to me is it, it involves you a lot more uh, in terms of the actual art of focus pulling because you get to see the image right away and you get to see how you can contribute to the image by where you pull to, how you pull, when you pull, the the um, over the shoulders or the, the passing of the focus from front one uh, actor to the other maybe. You can time it a lot better. Um, and also like you were talking about when the actor turns um, the head and you would then see... Um, okay, does it make more sense to shift the focus from the bright eye to the darker eye? Where does my attention go to? Is it really the, the, the bright eye uh, most of the time? Or does it make more sense? Or what's what's the, the, the story demanding right now? You know, that's an important part of why we all read the scripts. Uh, so we know we have a feel for the scene. We know what to do. And, and you get to be part of it a lot more or maybe just you know you you confer with the dp um before that and you ask him okay so how would we want to do this what do you want to do how do you want me to emphasize it or you just uh, don't talk about focus at all and you just have a feel for it and, and there's a good rapport between you, uh, the director the dp and you and you just do your thing and it works out that is uh, interesting that you bring that up because I, I, I was planning on asking you this a little later, but uh, since we're on the topic, because I, I noticed, I watched a few um, movies that uh, you pulled focus on, and I noticed that I think, A, your timing is uh, almost impeccable, and it it really it really stands out to me that it is a, it is a creative choice that you're making. Um, and um, in many cases um, where I've noticed it was that, you know, sometimes you you really take your time when, you know, you rack from an actor to the background, for example. And it always seems to actually match the the overall feel of the scene, if not the, the movie in general. Um, yeah, and that was my question. How do you do you usually is that something that you talk to? Uh, the DP about in the beginning or is it something that you know you usually talk to the operator about because you know they they should actually know and talk to the DP about it um, do you just suggest something during the take and uh, you know if no one if no one says hey I don't like that let's do something else then you know you just keep it like do you do you just do whatever you think suits the the scene in the beginning and then talk about it or is that something that you actually communicate before you you start a scene that really depends it it's varied and, and maybe sometimes from scene to scene or from uh 
from people to people that you work with you know some uh, dps or directors would just let me have creative freedom and sometimes they have an input on it sometimes i have an input on it sometimes um, they have very definite ideas on what they want and sometimes i just suggest something uh, especially if you're doing shooting the rehearsal uh, <laughs> then you just do what you do and, and and sometimes it works out or you get a feel for the timing and then you have the dialogue in mind and then um there was one dp for instance i worked with her and then we developed a very good um report in that time and then you would see during one take where she would look at she wouldn't even need to pan or tilt the camera to any specific place but you already knew like uh -huh, next take we're gonna go there and so that's what happened uh and and, and we don't talk a lot like in uh one of the uh, recent films in Stowaway, I we hardly talked about the focus at all and, and just worked. And on others, yeah, you do talk a lot. Um, okay, because I, you know, for me, it's always it's a little bit tricky because I, I, you know, I I come from the, you know, the image film and commercial world, um, and uh, it was my dream to like always, you know, be a focus puller on um, on narrative projects. And now, you know, I'm slowly getting there. Um, and now I, I find myself in the position quite often where um, I'm, I don't think I'm brave enough when it comes to making a creative choice, a, a focus pulling choice. Um, and sometimes I think I'm, I'm over communicating. Sometimes I'm, I'm walking up to the, you know, in our case, it's usually the DP because we don't uh, on, on only on the really big budget German movies. You have a DP and an A camera operator. Usually they're the same person. Um, so I usually walk up to the DP and I say like from the get go, it's like, okay, you know, what, what are you trying to accomplish here? Like, you know, who are we, who are we trying to highlight here? you know, what, uh, is, is there a rack? Should we do this? And sometimes I wonder, maybe I should just, you know, shut the fuck up and, uh, and just do it and, uh, and see what they say. You know, I think they're going to yell at me or not yell at me, but like, let me know if they don't like it and sometimes i feel like maybe maybe i should just be braver and just like even during the first take just be like all right i'm just gonna do it the way i see it and if they don't like it we can uh, adjust in the second take yeah definitely like as i said this is why i read a script this is why you mm -hmm. get a feel for the whole scene and this is why you know in advance well, theoretically what is going to happen and in most cases you do and, and then yeah you just be brave And like you said, you'll get told off if that's the wrong thing or if you misunderstood the scene. Maybe the director has a completely different interpretation of it. But that was one of the, the most precious um, tips I also got in the beginning was that basically your, your timing is above or senior to just nailing the focus every single time. And it's more about timing than focus and hitting it perfectly right on. You, know, yeah. you can adjust a little bit, but messing up the timing will draw uh, much more attention than a little buzz all right well that's uh, that's great advice i'm glad i'm glad we uh we took it there uh, so early all right awesome thank you um <laughs> all right what else do i have here oh okay so we were uh, originally on the uh equipment um topic um yeah. Yeah. last year when i visited you in berlin um i got to see a little bit of um you know the tools of the trade that you bring Uh, one thing that really stood out to me was that you have, I believe, two um, thermal 
uh, lens cases or heated lens cases, if you will. Um, and I believe you built those yourself. And um, if you want to like tell us a little bit about them, like how did you build them? Um, how many, you know, are they holding primes only? Are they holding uh, zoom lenses as well? When do you use the thermal function? Um, how does that work? Uh, no, that that was a whole evolution. It was definitely not uh, just I by myself. Um, we built those, Sasha and Gendi and, and I, the guy who makes or prints the A box. Mm. Um, he and I, we we had talked about this for a long time before, and and um, I mean the need for a heated lens case. God, that was that was over twenty years ago already. There were some early versions of it, and then you know you would. Uh, just use one of these gas heaters uh, and then <laughs> accidentally singe the foam of the lens case <laughs> when you shooting out there somewhere on Acacia and then you had to move, went down lower and went into out and outside it's minus 10 and, uh, Celsius and inside, well, everybody wants to be cozy. So you've got a 30 temp uh, degree temperature yeah. <laughs> difference. Um, uh, yeah, um, it may or may not have happened. <laughs> but so... Finally, I think in, in was it 2015 or something, um, we we started to approach the subject a lot more, and we had different approaches. I had my first prototype that I had built with um, a heat bed underneath, so the heat would rise to the top, um, and and he went uh, along the route of. Uh, having the heat bed or the, the sheets on, on top of the lens case and then uh, the fans distributing the air throughout. And um, they both kind of worked, but I just found out quickly that, you know, I didn't like my approach in the end uh, in, in day-to-day -day life, that it would, the lenses felt a lot more wobbly, of course, because you couldn't have foam underneath. It, it needed to be a mesh underneath. So it was all right, but it just wasn't a thing. Um and so Sasha is definitely a lot better at electronics than I am, um, for sure. And I did some research, he did the majority of it, and then he had built his prototype and that worked. And then we built those two cases that I had more mid-2016, I think, or something, or maybe 2017. Mm -hmm. um, and so you can use them. I, I did use them uh, on shoots. Like the most extreme was, I think, at minus 17 Celsius, outside so that's what that's zero Fahrenheit roundabout um, shooting that in the morning and then you uh, go inside um, at uh, maybe 15 or, or 20 degrees Celsius and so at least the lenses were at a fairly comfortable five degrees or maybe eight degrees um, and you had no fogging up that was very good to use them on that or you know these uh, spring mornings when you can leave stuff out in the camera truck and it still has it's still around freezing uh during the night but then the sun comes up very quickly and very strong and so the lenses fog up so you just want to preheat your lenses things like these so would that be um you know pretty much then the first thing in the morning is that you know you 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 get going and uh you start setting up the camera and that's when you when you turn on the heat um knowing that the sun will come out eventually or knowing that you know you're going to move inside or is that you know do they heat up quickly like how um you know do you say like okay in 20 minutes we're going to move inside is that enough time to heat them up or do you really have to keep them running pretty much the entire morning uh, it, it depends on your temperature differential um 
But yeah, you would want to start early. Like 20 minutes is cutting it a bit short, especially if they've been uh, cooling out overnight. You you need more like an hour, an hour. Um, until everything is warm enough. And uh, the the um, yeah, since you asked about what does the whole world, it depends on how you do the layout. I mean, the uh, the cases that we use there are uh, right now with those those early builds and prototypes there from the company Zargus. They're um, uh, German company that makes all kinds of cases, kind of like the the German aluminium pelly case thing. It, it's yeah. widely distributed in what we use it. Um, and those are military grade boxes that um, lend themselves to a lot of fantastic uses. You know, they fit perfectly on the top shelf of a magliner. Um, if you take a VW bus or van, you you fit three of them next to each other in the back. Uh, it just works out almost by half an inch. Um, they they seem to have come to an arrangement there that this is the standard measurement. Yeah. Um, so, and the inlay we we played around with that I think in, in the first time that um, uh, other ACs like ones that I grew up with and they started working with me on film. So I, the first time we used that kind of box was in two thousand eight two thousand nine I think, and then the find the the layout for those lenses um, actually manufactured by machines was in 2014 okay. and now we have um uh adjustable uh inlays basically you can have a set of eight or you can have smaller ones there's the the f-stop uh um shin master icu inlay that fits perfectly into that you can play around with that a lot more okay so you do have basically an entire um arsenal of of different inlays so you can house um, many types of different lenses yeah basically okay that's smart um all right then let's move on to you know i i have a feeling uh, that i know the answer to this one but what's your um what's your favorite fizz um system <laughs> well yes i pretty much um i grew up on Aerie all the way because the first dp i worked with he uh and, and worked with for eight years he was very close to uh bob arnold and, and the other guys so we um, got to use a lot of that stuff and i just grew up in it and, and hardly ever really used anything else so wcu4 yes and um ever since i first saw the high five about a year ago and played around with it i couldn't wait for it to be released so um that's gonna be the next on the list all right. Um, well then, perfect segue. Almost if it's we, as if we had planned it. Uh, perfect segue to the high five. Um, I think we got to talk about it a little bit because when I visited you last year in Berlin, I noticed that you had made your own design of, um, you know, pre-marked focus rings. Um, I believe it was the 20 inch and the three foot six inch. Uh, interestingly yeah. enough, you do pull um in uh, feet and inches uh even though you're working in germany um uh, real quick on that because i i'm not sure if you if you always did that because back in the day on 35 it was probably all metric um style lenses uh, when did you adjust to to feet and inches and was there any particular reason you did that um i feel playing with that idea for a long time but i think ultimately the change was in 2014 um and, and simply for the reason just because it feels more natural it, it's you don't need to have um increments of you know 
37 centimeters and 49 centimeters and things like this but basically uh, mostly especially when using a monitor to readjust the, the fine things i can think in in times of of the clock like you know it's three it's quarter past three it's quarter to four it's um it that's basically all it is mm, because i you know since i learned it um i learned the craft if you will in the united states where uh, in the beginning i thought there's no way I'm ever going to understand how they use feet and inches over uh, the metric system. And to this day, I would support that claim um, for pretty much everything, except for when it comes to pulling focus, because I really think that the increment of an inch is so much more suited to pulling focus. Um, and also one foot being, you know, roughly whatever, 32 or 33 centimeters, um, it it, it is this, like, if someone sits down and they always lean in for a very short moment until they go back, it's like, you know, you roughly hit a foot and that's about the motion. And I'm not sure how I could ever uh, readjust to going back to the metric system. But I thought it was just really interesting that you did that, uh, even though you, you know, you, you learned pulling focus in, in Germany, then also you learned it, you know, in, a, in the metric way. Um, so that's interesting. And uh, luckily, you know, the WCU4 um, allowed us to, you know, just uh, program lenses, uh, even though if they're metric, uh, if they have a metric scale, and then just tell the, the computer to uh, convert it into uh, the imperial system. That's, that's pretty nice. Yeah. Um, Since about a couple of years so before that it was a lot of uh, programming these lenses in in you know you sat there with your laptop and ethernet connection to the camera and you made up the uh, metric scale and then had to convert it in the computer and write a second digital scale in feet and oh, wow. then <laughs> then you would need to choose in the wcu um, whether you would have want to have an imperial or metric setting but it was it's basically a dual scale it does meters and um, feet in the same uh, LDA. Wow. So I bet when uh, when they release that software update um, where you can just, you know, switch to the metric system instantly uh, or from the metric system to the imperial system, you were probably one lucky person that day. One, one happy dude. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I saved so much time in the prep. Yes. Oh, sweet. Um, all right. Now, um, we talked about your rings and your design. Um, and when I saw the uh, high five uh, come out I looked at those rings and I said I I think I know the guy who kind of had uh, a little bit of uh, of a say in that um, how did you like how did your focus scales on those rings make it uh, onto the high five and why are there 10 rings now instead of five is there do you know anything about this uh, I may or may not. Um, <laughs> no, basically, Hendrik and I, we got to know each other uh, not quite 10 years ago at Aerie. And um, it, we, we had a little bit of interchange of feedback. Um, and then when they started working in, in, in Ernest on the H5, well, per, you know, what you heard on the last podcast when they talked about it around about 2017, yeah. I, of course, they went around the world and, and had all sorts of feedback from all sorts of colleagues and, and um, the first ACs all over the world that gave some input. But what we had done since 
we have our um, little online community in, in Germany too. Um, we had just done a survey of all the kind of input that uh, you would, what would you want? What software upgrades would you want on the WC for what should happen? So I had uh, collected all that. I um, then went to a meeting with Hendrik. I presented him with all of this data. Um, so that was a, a whole input from a lot of us people. And I also showed him my rings. Um, basically, they're exactly the same measurements that the, the, the regular pre-mount rings use. Um, and I just copied those measurements, but changed the layout a little bit and, and uh, the colors on it, etc. So it feels more suited to me. So I have see the, to me, more important measurements more quickly. And um, he liked the idea and, and so then took on that idea and, and did some changes to it himself. And so then not completely my own thing, but yeah, I have made my contribution. And, and that there are more rings, well, there has been a lot of demands from many focus pullers worldwide that um, the more Prima rings need to exist, especially at the, uh, at the longer end, like five and 10 feet and potentially longer in the future, who knows. Okay, have you played with those uh, those new rings a little bit? Did you get a chance yet? Uh, unfortunately, the um, since I'm not in Germany right now, the, uh, the High Five demo unit was stuck at customs for a long time, so <laughs> I couldn't play with them actually on set. I, I've had the prototype in my hands and I've, I've played with those rings before. Um, seems pretty cool. It's, uh, okay. It could be very, very useful. Because I'm excited. Because I mean, I'm you know, I'm I'm man, I'm glued to that uh, 20 inch ring, which I believe is the uh, the the half meter ring in uh, the metric system. Um, yeah. And that's really what I use. I mean, I mean, sometimes there are days where I did where I don't take it off. It's just it's always the same. Um, and yeah. then the 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 three foot six inch ring um, every now and again. So I'm really excited uh, about using. Um, or playing around with uh, with the other rings and seeing seeing how that works out. Um, were there yeah. any um, you know besides the rings, um, besides the besides the you know the feedback that that you were able to give um, when they announced um, the high five or when you know maybe maybe when you talked to them uh, to the area people a little bit earlier about it, were there any other features that really surprised you where you said, wow, this is actually this is amazing. I haven't I haven't thought of that, but it, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I'm, I'm quite glad, for instance, like that the focus bug license is something that will be included uh, because there's been a lot of feedback on the IT being the new industry standard and, and Hendrik and I talked about this too. Mm. Um, so that is something I'm very happy about that this happened. Um, what I do actually uh, like or what, which kind of surprised, well, in a way surprised me was the uh, integration of the ERM 2400 into the hand unit now so that you've got these different radio modules mm -hmm. um, and and the, the RIA one that those work together, the frequency hopping has been something now as Hendrik and, and Christina Hendrik said that uh, because it's so you know there's a lot of Wi-Fi interference on our sets today not only our focus stuff but also everybody's got something some open Wi-Fi, many of the lights are being handled on Wi-Fi. So you really fight for the best channel and that's why the frequency hopping will be something that I, I really like. Um, also the new batteries that they actually show you 
uh, how the, the length of time that you can still use them for, that's going to be good together with the hot swap. That's is, is something I really appreciate. Yeah. Um, the ECS Sync app, I wasn't uh, fully aware of that, so that was cool. Uh, that you play with that, and that, of course, you know you, you you can you dream up with things. What would you want? To, how would you want the focus rings to look like? What in this modern day and age would you want? And, and yeah, there are many ideas, and let's see what comes to pass over the next years. Uh, there's endless potential, and as many users as we are are out there, everybody's got some kind of an idea, and I bet they're drowning in suggestions. At Aries, some of them really intelligent, some of them maybe not feasible, some of them. Whatever, you know. Um, yeah. I mean I mean some of them probably also like, you know, suited to, to somebody's really personal need. Um, but you know, they're trying to make a product that, yeah. that suits pretty much everyone in the industry. Um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. They probably have a lot on their plate that they have to work through. And uh, yeah. I'm 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 excited with what they came with what they came up with in the end and uh, I'm really excited to, to get this thing in my hands and uh, hopefully it will hit the German rental houses soon so yeah. i can get one hopefully my order is in already um but i, I really hope that the or uh, i'm looking forward to the the, the tailor-made uh displays of we'll see in the future i don't know you know there's endless possibilities with that now how you could customize your own display and could want that i maybe we'll see more down the line i, I don't know yeah and uh, you know the the Synarity integration was something you know I'm um, I own my own uh, Synarity system, and uh, I rely on it so heavily on the WCU4 already. And I said you know I would, it would be so great if I could just see um, if I was able to actually see a bug and whatever the um, the the base unit um, whatever that readout is it would be so amazing to have both on that display and like that by itself when that came out on the uh on the day they released the high five i was like this is amazing like it's a game changer already um and then it was it was the small things um like like the tail slate mode which yeah. isn't it's a no-brainer and it's not a big deal but i mean how many tail slates are going to be saved uh, from being cut just because of that. I mean, that's you know, it's something so simple, but I think it can really, really uh, help us in in major ways. Yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, since you mentioned also the the uh, synergy, and I mean the three user buttons, they definitely play a whole big part in that integration, where you can um, play around with a few settings on the synergy too, as far as I'm aware. So that. That's yeah. going to be, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to using that. Also. Oh, me too. Um, uh, while we're back on the CineRT for a second, I um, have one quick question for you. Uh, I, I feel like, you know, for, for people not only using the monitor these days, but if you rely on a rangefinder, um, you also need to be able to rely on your lenses and on the on the distances. Uh, you know, you, you need to make sure that your lens is accurately flanged. Um, yeah. Now, unfortunately, we do not live in a world where we get, you know, four or five, six prep days um, for a, you know, normal uh, TV movie in Germany, for example. Um, usually we get about two prep days. Um, so sometimes, you, you know, but you have two prep days, but you still have 14 lenses or more. 
how do you when you prep um do you have do you have any sort of um like a like a hack on how you make sure your lens is accurate without wasting too much time on it like do you only um measure certain distances and uh, you know if those are correct you move on or how how do you do this quickly um well yeah the, that subject in itself of properly collimated lenses is still super important to me i i don't want to have a lens where i can't trust mm. um what's on the lens Uh, so I, in this case, I mean, I, I do look at every single lens individually and as usual, you know, when you've got more cameras, you cross check a few lenses with other cameras just to make sure that they work on everything. And then sometimes that turns out to be a huge, big mess. And that's the part also when you need to um, warn production beforehand and, and insist on more than two prep days simply because everything else is unprofessional. And, and it's up to you to come up with the, the you just need to give them the appropriate information so that production can understand what the needs are. Um, because when they see the importance of it and when you communicate that properly, I don't think that anybody in their right minds um, would deny you that extra day. Of course, sometimes there's just no money left for anything, but th those are the small productions um, where you're dealing with completely different problems as well. But mm. anyway, so when when you do have to dedicate enough time to uh, collimating your lenses, to looking, at, to cross-checking them, to make sure that everything works, and I would maybe roughly, you know, in the beginning, set up uh, a distance of what a meter or maybe. Uh, three feet or something for the wider lenses go to five feet and and just quickly check all of the lenses on there since you don't have to do the proper lens tests like you do on film anymore you can pretty quickly see what happens and yes when there is more or if there's more time then you can check what, what does it look like uh when you take everything into account like where's the fall off and and uh how far will that lens carry me or is there something like a, a sombrero focus where you know when when it just doesn't hold it in one plane but you will have to adjust mm. focus as somebody walks in from or through from one side to the other side and and just the focus doesn't hold Yeah. Um, do you use um, do you use the because I've I've seen uh, ACs on on Instagram use their focus bug. Um, uh, they just put that basically on the on the Siemens star on the lens chart, and uh, that's how they that's how they measure quickly. Do you do you use that at all? Uh, no, I um, I could I should <laughs> I should integrate that a lot more. No, I still use a laser, um, and and just do it as precisely as I can. Yeah, uh, me too. Um, I don't, for, for for some reason, it always it, it feels a little bit weird to use the 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 bug, but it does make a lot of sense. But for some reason, I'm I don't know. I haven't gotten around to uh, to be brave enough to do it. I'm, I'm, I don't know why, because I rely so heavily on that thing anyway. <laughs> so uh, yeah. it should work. But I st it's an increment of an inch, basically, that it shows you. Um, I, I still go the old school way. I still see that I align it perfectly in the middle. I use a mirror to make sure that the camera is centered and then go the distance from there. Okay. All right. Uh, I think we covered, uh, well, a lot of the equipment and technical side of things. Um, one yeah. other thing I would love to talk to you about because I am, um, 
you know, very, very grateful that uh, you and some of your colleagues came up with this idea. Uh, when I moved back to Germany, um, a common friend of ours, uh, Roman Müllecker, he uh, introduced me to you. And uh, he said that you uh, were part of a group of uh, ACs, I think, um, mostly coming from the Munich, uh, Germany area. Um, you have created a Slack uh, community for uh, German-based camera assistants. And I think there's also a second one for camera operators, if I'm not mistaken. Um, the cool thing about this is that um, you can always ask a technical question and you will get a response usually within minutes. Um, you know, if people are looking for a day player or if someone gets sick and they need a replacement, uh, all of that is being posted in that Slack community, um, usually um, sorted by city. Um, so you can say, I'm looking for someone in Munich, I'm looking for someone in Berlin and so on. Um, and uh, well, there's much more in that or to that group. But how, when did this start? Uh, how did it start? And uh, well, uh, on top of that, thank you very much that you did that because I think it's amazing. Um, but yeah, please tell us a little bit about it. Um, yeah, you're totally welcome. And it makes our lives so much easier, like mine too. Um, it, it started as a collaboration in oh, 2014, 2015, maybe. Um, it was one of these WhatsApp groups of a film um, that, that uh, is some first ACs were on and second ACs, and, and so that just grew. Um, and um, that was a local group in Munich, and by 2016, I think we had 100 uh, um, camera crew members in Munich uh, in that Slack group, in, in that WhatsApp group that was uh, loaders as well as focus pullers. Um, and then, of course, you know, we talk and, and their friends in Berlin and they had a similar idea or wanted to have something similar, uh, Cologne the same. So um we quickly had whatsapp groups in these individual cities and then somebody suggested slack as a platform as something that's actually really workable because it's much easier to keep track of all these different threads and then we segued over to slack i think in 2016 2017 and um there are about oh, 700 something members ranging from um, video operators uh, to camera operators to loaders first acs um, basically anybody in the technical aspect of the camera department. Um, and like you said, yeah, it's subdivided into all sorts of cities, um, but then uh, specific channels for technical questions that you have or also like Focus Pull at Work has with these the specific um, channels for C-Motion or Airy or Sony. Um, and there are other questions, for instance, you need to move somewhere maybe want to ask for if is there a possibility uh to, to maybe rent an apartment in that city so there's many many possibilities and of course there's a channel for uh, cat pictures too <laughs> that's right um there is indeed um, um i also noticed that uh you know within the uh every pcs um group or thread or whatever you call that on slack um there you know every just recently posted a I think it was a, uh, I think it was about the new spider grips, if I'm not mistaken. Um, you know where they're just asking for feedback, and uh, you know I I think that also is a great way because I mean that's a 
community of people that work with their stuff uh, constantly on a very professional level. And uh, I think it's it's the perfect place for a company like Aerie to uh, hop on there and be like, hey guys, uh, we need your feedback. We would like to uh, improve that product and we would like to improve it to your liking so that uh, it makes life on set easier for you. Um, is that something that has always been um, part of the idea for that group? Um, have they always done that or is that something that you're trying to implement more and will there be more companies that can actually you know ask those those sort of questions um it hasn't been part of it from the very beginning on like uh the the, the specific channels for the companies were added to, to later and it, it's kind of what is happening with focus political work on an international level mm. for us just on a national level um The, the 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 platform as such and the group is uh, quite busy currently um, with all sorts of things and it seems to be running well and sometimes we would adjust to individuals requests or or if more people wanted them we would vote what else do we want for that um, to keep things fair we've got I think 16 admins distributed all uh, across the cities um so it remains a democratic group and and um, is not slanted one way or another um and but there are no great uh, developments planned for right now because it does serve the purpose of what we need and it works out to uh satisfy all demands but i think we've got um like 15 different sub channels or maybe 20 by now hmm. okay um all right uh then Uh, I would like to move on to uh, another thing that uh, you know you uh, surprised me with when I uh, met you in Berlin last year um, because you you gave me a 3D printed part that kind of changed my life ever since. Um, it was this very very <laughs> tiny uh, right angle bracket for the Airy L cube, um, which is one of these pieces that I hate because it serves a purpose. And that purpose is very, very important to the way I pull focus. But it also is one of these things that's just, it's on the camera and it bothers me because it's it, its just there and it always takes up space. And your bracket um, allowed me to, uh, on the Alexa Mini, to actually put the L-Cube right next to the lens mount so it's out of the way because that's one of these places where you never put anything and it's it's just out of the way and it's amazing um but you have actually printed a lot of different um things that uh, help you uh as an ac um i think you have printed a lot of parts for the wcu4 um at least for your own hand unit um when did you start printing um how did you learn to uh design Uh, 3D prints, um, how did that, when did it happen and, and, and how did that come? <laughs> okay, to keep a long story short, hopefully, and I'll end up with a long version again. Um, it, it is all part of this uh, um, wanting to perfect things, wanting to get workflows as streamlined as possible and to um, waste as little time as possible in between changing setups, having huge compatibility, etc. So that started many years ago yeah 20 years ago actually almost where you just wanted to have things work out perfectly well and then shooting with the steadicam a lot and that needed to be versatile enough um and, and now with the production needs over the last 10 years where you switch a lot faster between 
Steadicam and gimbals in studio mode and handheld mode, etc. So, um, um, you develop an eye for for what bothers me. What do I want? What do I want to change? Um, we've been messing around with things for a long time, making them out of aluminium or steel right angles and, and this and that. And you, every time it's kind of like, oh, I wish there were a thing for that has turned into a hand. Well, okay, um, so what are we going to do? Uh, and, and it's my own, some of them are my own ideas. Some of them are feedback from someone else, some uh, collaboration with others. Um, I started with the, not too long ago, 2017, maybe 2016, 2017. Um, and uh, I started working with the program, uh, learning it on YouTube Academy. Which parts that you, that you have designed, um, you know, tend to help you the most? And uh, were there some designs that you, that you came up with that you thought were going to be brilliant and then you know as soon as you as soon as you made them you were like this doesn't work at all it doesn't serve the purpose um were there any any of those cases as well uh yeah there are plenty of things where you think oh this is so brilliant and then you use it and set and you find out it takes up more time than it actually gives you uh and, and it, it's more serving itself as a purpose not really helping me on set um What kind of things do I use, though? Well, my standard setup is always the um, uh, adaptive bracket, basically, that I have on the back of my WCU4, um, which holds a, a washer that I can then use to attach the WCU4 to the magnetic mount that I have on my C-stand. Plus, it's got quick releases on top and on the bottom, um, so I could attach the monitor to that. But the bottom one was a kind of a nice to have idea, but I've never really used it. The monitor just sits on top of the WCU4 usually when I go handheld. Yeah, I've uh, noticed that. I, I really like your um, your focus stand um, period. I Because it is, it is a very simplistic focus stand, um, but every single piece that you have on there seems to be thought out uh, very well. I believe you have an A-Box um, uh, that you mentioned earlier, um, Zigmento's uh, A-Box on there. Um, and then everything else, I really like that um, you have a magnetic mount for your um, CineRT hand unit. Uh, it's a magnetic mount uh, for the WCU4, even though I really wonder how you did that because that thing can be so heavy. Um, and then, you know, you can put the monitor on top if you need it. Um, It is a very well thought out stand. Um, how long did you work on it? Is it still a work in progress, or do you are you happy with it? And you're just gonna you're just gonna pretty much leave it the way it is. Um, it is not a work in progress currently with the WCU4 itself. This attachment, the rest of the uh, home office, as I like to call it. It has been called is still developing, of course, and with the changing needs of, of what happened. Um, <clears throat> this magnetic mount thing, um, again, has been the thing with with Sasha and I, Sasha at Segmento. Um, he, I think, he was the first one to use that magnetic mount on the back of the WCU4 with uh, aluminium made parts back at the time, and so then 
you know, go through various iterations and you, what else could I improve? What could change? What could this and that? And then you use it and you're not quite happy with it or you don't like the design of it and then you change that and then you go on to the next part. That's just the natural course of prototype to prototype. And do you have any uh, ideas for the high five already? Uh, yes, there are a few things that uh, I'm working on together with another colleague. Cool. I'm excited to see those. Where um, where can people find your uh, your parts uh, or you know say the do you do you sell the the parts? Do you sell the files? Um, do you just share the files? Where where can people find um, your innovations? I've uploaded some on the Focus Polar at work in the 3D community. Um, I, I don't really believe in selling most of them just because it's it's a little thing and, and I don't really even want to go through the whole process of um, having to manufacture them for others and then postage back and forth and this and that. Just 3D printing is so readily available and everybody's got great ideas. And you see so many developments and so many fantastic things where you're kind of like, okay, cool. I'll just contribute my part to it and then maybe I'll benefit from others doing their things. So I think that's a give and take. There are a couple of things that um, are uh, being sold where I contributed to or that I made, which is at, at uh, Lens Camera Tools. Mm. Well, I, I, that's interesting what you just said there because I, I believe uh, in that as well. It's, it is a community. Um, uh, there are not... There are not a lot of focus pullers in this world, um, so it is a very, it feels like a very tight knit community, and I really appreciate that. You know, it seems like everyone kind of chips in. Um, most people just share their designs um, these days on Instagram. You can see uh, so many builds. Um, first of all, because um, ACs are proud of their work and. Uh, because they want to share it and then you can just look at pictures and i mean i've, I've been studying pictures um for a long time where you can, oh, that's that's a great idea like i like how that person put the tarot deck there or uh you know whatever the um the little uh tricks and hacks that people come up with and say oh that's cool i like how they move that cable or uh wherever they put that cable and stuff like that and uh yeah and i think in in many ways uh, people contribute to this so you know i I appreciate the the thought uh, that you have there that, uh, you know, you just want to share and be a part of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that brings us to a, a more important issue of the whole thing, though, because obviously with the advent of the digital um, platforms and everything, we do grow together a lot faster and a lot more. And then also the uh, platform, the Slack group that we have in Germany, it's, it's definitely made us much more of a group. And that is something that we do uh, still learn worldwide. I think everyone of us that that it is about us as a group, the whole crew as a group, and you're not individual fighters fighting your own thing out there. But you know, it's a people thing. It's part of your life. It's your dedication and enthusiasm will take you so far. But at the end of the day, you also work with people, and you want to enjoy that time, and you. Of course, it is about a professional set and work has to get done. Nonetheless, we uh, make so many sacrifices um, that, that, you know, there has to be some balance to it, on the other hand. Yes, I agree. And, um, and I think, 
Yeah, I mean, you know, you you spend you spend eight weeks, ten weeks, or whatever on on a movie um, in general. Like that's lifetime, and um, and I always think, you know, this is a very very cool and unique industry. And uh, yes, I I don't want to waste that time. I really want to enjoy it. Um, and I think uh, you know, seeing that so many other ACs kind of have that same passion. Um, that's just that's amazing. I think that's also very unique to our industry. I don't think there's too many uh, industries where people kind of like have that sort of fire in them um, to you know to to go to work and never feel like it it's work. You, you go there and you just say like I could do this all day. This is amazing, uh, and now you're paying me for this even better. <laughs> like that's great. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely one part of it um, where you you do get to enjoy this huge privilege, but that privilege, of course, comes with a dedication and with a price to pay. And yeah. as long as you're you're young and as long as you're independent, this is all super cool. And I mean, getting paid for exploring the world, or at least exploring different parts of your country and and just being in random places that nobody ever gets to yes what a privilege that is but for many people once you start uh having a family or or um, amassing other responsibilities you find out that there is a lot more to that and it's not about glory and uh reveling in wonderful things that this life filmmaker presents to us yeah, no, you're totally right. Uh, and I know that because I happen to have three children and uh, I, I know about some of the sacrifices that you that you have to make. Um, uh, yeah, it can be hard. Um, and uh, I think I talked in the in the first episode of this podcast, I when I talked to Nick Brown, we uh, we uh, already talked about it. And he said, yeah, it's you know, you everyone who wants to work in this industry has to make some sacrifices. But I think in the end, um you just you have to find a way to make it work and you have to find a way to make it um we all have to i think agree on the fact that we can always make this better i think uh you know now as we currently uh read so many posts on instagram and facebook about how uh, the hours in our industry need to change because you know working 14 15 hour days on a daily basis for 10, 12, 14, 15 weeks straight, that's not healthy. And uh, I really think that, uh, you know, it, it's it's up to us as the people that work in this industry to actually uh, change that. Uh, we wandered off topic here, but uh, I'm glad we I'm glad we uh, we are here. Yeah. And, and plus on that part, um, we as a camera department actually are fairly well off when it comes to that. I mean, think of other people you know ADs or locations or yes. hair and makeup or other but we've got very short hours in comparison to other uh, departments yes uh, I agree with that um, and uh, what I really like about being in the camera department um, some people may disagree but what I love about it is that you know um, once you get going in the morning you go the entire day there's very rarely a uh, a longer break i mean it depends on the show obviously but i think for for most productions that's probably true you don't get a break um except for your lunch break and uh, i enjoy that part because it, it makes the the day go by eventually and uh it it doesn't slow me down so it's just like i'm constantly like okay you know we're we're ready to go here and uh 
constantly on it. But yeah, I think you're right. There are um, some other departments where um, they work longer hours. And then I think in between they have uh, some downtime, but they're never really off. So it's not like they have like a two hour break. It's just like where the day for them gets kind of slower. And I think that's even harder to maintain your energy if, you know, you've been sitting around for an hour because there's not much going on in your department. And then all of a sudden you need to go back and, and have like 110% uh, of your energy back. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. We in the camera department are uh, kind of blessed with that. Being the camera department, to me, I've had all sorts of things. Like I've definitely had the shows where you full on from the moment you open the truck till the moment you close the truck. But um, there were other shows that I've been on where you, yeah, you do your setup and you prepare everything as much as you can. But then you are on standby for a long time. There's not really a downtime because you have to be there and ready to react, like everybody else actually. Um, but you're not really doing anything for 10 minutes, 15 minutes. Um, and, and that is, I think, a big challenge where you do need to keep yourself alert all the time and not uh, you know, just let your concentration drop too much so that you then start making mistakes. And usually that's okay. I, I don't really have a problem with it. Sometimes what I do struggle with a little bit, though, is um, that you block something um you kind of have an idea of distances then uh, there are other ideas and uh, um then it takes a while and or in between takes maybe you've done a difficult take that you focus on and you, you have rock, uh, focus racks that are timed from here to there and then things change and actor and director um speak and, and maybe somebody else has some other ideas and and that is all just part of that process of filmmaking where this is my responsibility as a focus puller that I have to um, be aware of that that I just need to be ready for everything and, and even if it takes 10 to 15 minutes between takes when all you personally would really want is another take right away mm -hmm. because you are now in the swing of things and you, you've got that timing and you've got that feel for it and you know that when there's a take in a break in between somebody will forget some crucial part of the timing and then you're kind of like ah i wish we would have rehearsed it but that's just the part i think you have to uh, live with that challenge which which to me is one of the bigger challenges to really keep everything fresh in your head and definitely remember things that uh happened 15 minutes ago with tiny little minutiae in the in, in changes yeah, yeah, it's interesting that you say that. Um, that's true. And um, I usually experience that the most when uh, you're in the middle of a longer scene and uh, it's like, okay, we're going, you know, we're breaking for lunch. And then you say, oh. you come back from lunch and it's, it's hard to get yourself um, or to put yourself back into that same kind of mental... Um, headspace where you were before because you were in that scene you know you're you're 100 focused uh pun intended here uh on that scene and you you you're in it and then you know you come back from lunch with a full belly and you're just like okay where what was this where are we what is happening um yeah i think that's a collective suffering that is a collective suffering um and uh you can always I, I have the feeling that you can always tell like for the first 15 minutes um after you start again after the the lunch break it's um the energy is off a little bit and then it, it takes some time to like uh, get back into it um all right there is one more big topic that i would like to talk to you about because i um I mean, you have worked on so many uh, 
big movies, um, especially big German movies uh, early on in your career, um, big feature film productions, big, um, you know, the, the TV market in Germany is uh, huge. Um, there's a lot of, well, I would say not so great production uh, going on, uh, but there are also some really, really big um, projects um, that go straight to TV, but that's part of our uh, market and the way we work here in Germany. And you have worked on some of the, the biggest ones. Um, and now you're currently moving into, well, I would say more uh, the international um, side of productions, which uh, is really exciting to you know, to follow you on Instagram. Uh, oh, by the way, uh, you can find out there at uh, Wizard of Buzz is his name there. Um, so check out his Instagram. It's really cool. Um, but it's really cool to like, you know, follow that um, progress. Uh, is that something that just happened? Did you just stumble upon that? Um, was it always your goal to like work on bigger, more international kind of productions? Um, was, was that a an, an approach that you took or did that just happen? Hard to say. Um, it, and I don't personally think it just happened. Yes, it was a lot of uh, right time, right place, meeting the right people, um, staying in touch with people, um, making up my mind on um, things that I would want to do, kind of laying out a plan in my head, making fanciful experiments of what could happen and then sometimes i think the universe just has a way to um, allow for that to happen so i'm i'm very grateful for this that it came to fruition many times in a way that i would have thought of and and the projects i was allowed to work on and i've i've definitely enjoyed them no matter how hard the work may have been but being aware of the opportunity you've been given and the privilege you get to enjoy and, and what you get to do when you see others actually suffer a lot more under circumstances that I very luckily never had to suffer from that much. Yeah, I also do think, though, I mean, yeah, right place, right time. But I think, you you know, you, you can call that lucky. Um, but I also believe that it's a You know, you, you make your own luck in a way, because if you don't throw yourself out there and if you don't get yourself in a position where you can be lucky, where you can be on the receiving end of, you know, uh, that kind of luck, um, then uh, the opportunity will never arise. Um, uh, what sure. people may not know here is that uh, we're actually talking to a, uh, well, a Oscar uh, winning um, first AC. Uh, Audil has worked on a movie called Nowhere in Africa by um, the German uh, director Karoline Link. And um, how, I mean, you worked on that movie. I've seen that movie long before I knew you. Um, it's a great movie. It won uh, the Oscar for um, best foreign movie. Um, when did you, that night, did you watch the Oscars? Um, and when you heard about that, that movie has won How did you perceive that? Like, was that something? Was that a special moment for you? Yeah, it definitely was a special moment. But um, we were shooting that night, or, or, or um, I'm not quite sure. We were shooting movie at the time for sure, and um, I, we couldn't get to watch it because of the schedule that we had. And so then I found out about it um, on the um, 
uh, on the next day, and we were sitting at breakfast in the hotel. The DP, um, the the operator, and I, and then funnily enough, the the um, lead actor of the current film uh, came up to our table and uh, kneeled down in front of our DP and kind of like, I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. I was kind of like, oh, oh, that film must have won an Oscar now. Good. Oh, amazing! Cool. <laughs> that was a very funny story. Um, yeah, that was a, a, you know, for for all of you who have not seen that movie, that is a very, very good, uh, solid German movie. That was also definitely one of the most intense to be part of and one of the most intense experiences to have had. So I, I even though it's 20 years ago, I still look back at the times and, and, and enjoy and revel in the times and experiences that I've had at that time and, and what I could learn from it and take from it. Cool. So yeah, definitely watch that. Um, most or more recently, you have worked. Um, I mean, you've worked on so many movies that uh, you know we could go through a long list here. But uh, I just picked some that were um, quite recent. Um, you have worked on what I would call is a uh, more like a first person or a third person shooter um, more than a than a movie called Guns Akimbo, starring uh, Daniel Radcliffe. Um, it is a very, very stylish um, piece of uh, modern filmmaking, I would call it. Um, I mean, there were a lot of really cool uh, scenes in that movie. Um, first of all, what camera setup did you use? Um, was it full frame or was it not? We were shooting on a red monster, the 8K with the, um, the, the Thalia lenses from Leica. Okay. And uh, how challenging was that movie? Because when I watched it, it looked incredibly challenging. Um, it seems like they gave you little to nothing um, to work with. Um, wide open, uh, for the most part, um, crazy colors. I mean, just cra crazy red and blue and just all over the place. Lots of shooting and stuff, and I think you nailed uh, you nailed focus for the most part. How challenging was it? Huh. Well, I mean, I think we're all becoming aware of the difference between 2K to 8K, so we'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, actors were very talented and very cooperative, and that was a joy to work on that, for sure. Um, because of the colors, that was another reason for the choice of the, the monster with the 8K, because if you've only got red light in a scene and, and you were to use 2K only, well, yeah, a quarter of the pixels are red, so you lose out on a lot of light and a lot of resolution. So going from 8K, at least you've got kind of got 2K of red. That was a, a main reason for the choice, apart from the fact that the DP just also likes working with reds. Um, there was a there was a scene I think it's uh, early on in the movie where um, Daniel Radcliffe kind of wakes up with uh, you know he, he figures out that he's in his apartment he figures out that uh, someone has nailed uh, guns to his hand um, so he you know he has those guns uh, there and he can't get rid of them um, and uh, it looks like it's a uh, it's a steady cam with a Trinity I believe it wasn't the Trinity at the time um, and it's a I don't know, I would say like a, a two-minute kind of one-take um, going all the way through his apartment. Um, that really stood out to me uh, when I watched it. Um, how how difficult are those kind of 
takes. Um, is that something? Because I, mean, I think you can rehearse that to a certain point, um, but I think over the course of one and a half or two minutes, uh, things change. Um, you know, an actor might not hit a mark or whatever. Um, and how do you how did you adjust to that? Was that a very um, was it was it a hard shot or did it come quite naturally? And how how did that feel? Um, well, the, the, just to answer that question, the rig that we used was an um, MK5AR, um, which wasn't, yeah, it's not a Trinity, it's basically like a cage on top of the Steadicam and the camera can roll 360 and that and more. Mm -hmm. um, and somehow that shot, it, it just developed naturally. It wasn't actually that difficult to do. Luckily, in the end, I mean, yeah, Daniel Ratcliffe, he's just a very kind and very... Um, also technically for me reliable actor in that he very much understands what what our needs are as focus pullers and and so it was a joy to work with him on that and and so and also the steadicam operator he was precise um and those two factors the rest it wasn't a walk in the park but it was something that i could rely on and and it happened very quickly and i must say fairly easily for in relation to what the outcome was How do you remember how many takes you you did of that? Three, three. Okay, well, I, I don't know. That was just off the top of my head. There wasn't many for sure. Okay, and it's it's also interesting that you mentioned that um, you know someone like uh, Daniel Radcliffe was so uh, cooperative um, in terms of like you know working with the focus puller um, because he's quite a young. Uh, actor and I uh, noticed that a lot of the younger actors, you know, who have never worked um, with film so much, don't um, tend to not hit their marks anymore. To them, it's just like you know, this is a theater play, and we can and we can move, and it's fine. And um, and I think uh, I mean probably because uh, I think the majority, if not all, of the Harry Potter movies were shot on. Uh, 35 millimeters so i assume they they taught him like they really um kind of like uh uh taught him and, and showed him like hey you know this is how you can make our life easier um was that something that you noticed about him oh yeah that was a conversation that we had right uh off the bat like uh i introduced myself to him and he was like oh anything you need let oh, wow. me know because he, that was a surprising moment for me when somebody of his caliber was so forthcoming and, and so helpful where I was like, wow, okay, this is going to be one hell of a good movie because the challenges are big enough, but having somebody so supportive uh, in front of the camera and basically by my side, that was just, I, I was thankful right from the start for, yeah, for, for the the uh for precursors and, and who people who work with him before that they actually taught him so properly and made him so aware of that while inc incorporating the skill into this whole repertoire of acting skills and i i think to to the change that you were talking about um it is definitely a completely different approach also to what people get taught um at acting school today and the whole approach to filming where it's more about I am, some schools teach you that you need to find the truth of the moment and the truth in you. And, and uh, we've become very used to the um, use of monitors where you could actually tell the focus right away. And, and we've all grown with that and have given a lot of leeway to, to actors and directors and operators 
to play with that. And, and if I were to combine today's conditions um, with shooting on film 20 years ago, uh, I think I would have given up on my choice of career very quickly. <laughs> um, well said. Um, I worked with a um, with a first AC um, on my very first movie as a second um, here. It was in, in Germany, in Munich. Um, and um, this guy was an older, experienced uh, first AC, and he told me that he had worked with um, Tom Hanks on, I believe it was Cloud Atlas that they shot in Berlin or in, uh, in the Babelsberg uh, studios. And he said um, that at that point, and he, you know, like I said, a very experienced first AC had worked his uh, fair share of larger movies. And he said uh, something happened that never happened to him before. Tom Hanks actually came up and said, hey, what lens are we using? And he said, we're using an 85. And he said that then Tom Hanks adjusted his style of playing or of acting. And he would, uh, the the movements that he, you know, on an 18 or on a 25, that he would like, you know, play really largely and like actually moved a lot. He would only do like a third of that kind of move um, because he realized that like for the focus puller, it's a lot easier um, to work with that and uh, also that it looks so much better when you don't lean in all the way on an 85 as if you would do it on an 18 um, and I think you know a lot of um, maybe the really really big actors um, who worked on on 35 millimeter uh, a lot kind of have a, a better understanding for this and i really wish that was something that uh, more more actors and actresses would uh, would realize because it would help us so much and make our life so much easier yeah that is a bit of a predicament that you will have to approach carefully um with each individual setup and, and what it's about and how it is i mean I, I grew up, luckily, in, in a time um, of where that was just a regular part of the, the actor's craft. And it is a craft. It, it is not only an art. It is, it is, there's so much technical know-how that goes into being an actor. And, and um, I very much admire <clears throat> that skill in an actor, too. I mean, of course, th th that is not to, to disrespect actors in general. And, and they... Uh, um, if it weren't for them, that particular movie would not be how it is at that moment. And but they are also an integral part of the team, and we're a part of this team as much as as they are. And yes, they are the ones who garner the um, applause in the end, along with the director. And we live in the shadows, but that's just part of the game. And if you manage to be on a on a good level, and I think that's a lot more possible in in German movies. What I've experience that there's a lot more uh, interchange going on between actors and, and the crew and on some international ones where you have so many of the crew and, and now with the distance of the monitor in between the actors and us it, it there's just not the same relationship anymore so therefore a lot of a lot of that of course gets lost and and we tend to work in a way that we don't want to intrude um, upon their, their development of the character and, and that discipline and that whole art form of ours also has just evolved over the last 20 years and, and, and <sighs> there's a lot to say about this um, but I don't think we have the time for that <laughs> yeah you're right um, you are right we should uh, we are, I, I would like to I mean I'd like to talk to you forever man but um, 
I have, um, you know, my outro questions are usually um, what has been the best uh, piece of advice that you have ever been given by another AC, you know, when you were an up and coming AC? Um, well, the first one that I got that I told you about already is that the timing would be superior to nailing the focus right away. Mm. Um, then working on film, I, I heard that one very often that you, you, when judging distances, you would rather pull the focus closer than farther because yeah, with the depth of field, you usually have a third in front and two thirds behind of where you pull the focus to. So your likelihood of hitting it uh, is higher when you pull closer. Is that uh, real quick? Is that something that you still, um, you know, when, when using a rangefinder, for example, is that something that, that you still approach that way? That you say, like, okay, I'd, I'd rather go, you know, a couple inches closer? Well, if we have a couple of inches, then yes. Okay, yeah, if, um, if you do, of course. So, so uh, yes, definitely. I, I would I would tend to pull it a little bit closer because mathematically, physically, it just works out. Oh, makes sense. So okay, cool. It, it, it works and it just it looks less awkward if the focus is in front of the eye and barely reaching uh, or in front of the face and barely reaching the eye compared to if the focus is on the earlobe or the back of the head and you clearly see that there is more focus further down the field than in front of it oh very well put okay yep yep makes sense thank you yeah um, and the, the other one was quite uh, important in the beginning when they learned it, that you you don't pull a linear focus, meaning you don't have the same speed throughout. You don't have a hard start and a hard stop and the same speed in between. You do more an exponential curve of, you know, the, these biological growth functions that you have, which, which kind of looks like an S where it starts slowly and then speeds up and then also slows down again. Mm. to make for soft pulls in between and that you can cover a lot of distance in between those. So that that is part of your dexterity that you need to develop as a focus puller. Okay. Everything right. else looks more video or monitor. You know, when you see somebody who's searching the focus and he just racks from A to boom, B, and like, oh, fuck, okay, that was, sorry, excuse the language, <laughs> that was too far, and now I need to pull back again. And um, that that just doesn't work yeah. that is a a new and to me it just looks a bit like an inexperienced focus puller when i see such hard focus racks unless of course the scene demands it yes um and that's what i meant earlier when we talked about this i you know because you i think you said this too where um sometimes you know it's like it's better to roll in a little bit slower um it doesn't have to be the perfect most crisp focus at all times um, but for the feeling, it just feels more natural and 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 more like it, it feels more cinematic, I would almost call it uh, in in ninety percent of all cases when you you know when you slowly roll in, when you know you didn't hit it, you know and you slowly get there, um, then it it's it feels more cinematic and more natural um, to me at least. Yeah, that's another reason for why I would like to have some focus marks so I know where to pull to and I know when to get slower. So I I still definitely look at my hand unit and I just don't look at the monitor. Only. I can't do it with just looking at the monitor. I, I need to know where I pull to. Although we have all trained our muscle memory a lot and if you're only using, say, the 20-inch ring, then yes, you know it in your sleep almost. But still, that, yeah. that's just something how I grew up and how I will still do it. All right. Um, well, final question then um, for 
someone just starting out in this industry who uh, you know who would like to be in the camera department who would like to be an AC um, what would be your piece of advice like just you know for in in general um, what would you like to let every single young uh, up-and-coming AC uh, know out there I'm not going to go into any kind of a technical advice because yes everybody can learn technical stuff and it's a very technical department and 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 but yeah to me over the years film has much more grown to be a team sport than to excel in your technical knowledge and it is a people's game mm -hmm. so um i i to me it's more the concept of yeah you you definitely should be aware of this immense privilege that you're being granted and um um, and, and although you may really encounter hard times or long hours or bad hotels to sleep in or, or tempers of people that you will have to maybe deal with, um, you should also try to enjoy these hard times because they're just a part of your process of learning and growing up. And, and, and essentially for everybody that you're a team member who treats everybody like you would want to be treated yourself that you treat people equally and with respect, like whether it's a it's a PA or a producer or an actor or the grip or who cares? They're all people. We're all working this together and we all deserve respect. So we treat each other with that and understanding and, and try. we're all working towards the same goal. Amen to that, because I um, that was definitely something that I had to learn myself um, because I, I don't know, I was so angry in the beginning and, and, and things just, you know, set me on fire quickly and um, there was no reason for it. But it took me a while um, to, I think it was great for me to go to the United States um, because um, especially in the, uh, you know, in the, uh, in the southern states where people are so over the top friendly, um, I realized quickly like, hey, I'm not getting very far with my attitude here. And I believe in the beginning... Yeah. Um, it really did cost me a few opportunities or, you know, maybe, maybe even some jobs, um, yeah. just because I, I was too harsh and I just didn't, I don't know. Um, my things just got to me quickly. And, uh, yeah, like you yeah. said, eventually you have to, uh, learn it's like, Hey, we're all in this together. We're all trying to make the same movie and we all deserve, um, to be treated with dignity and respect. And I think that is very well put. Yeah, there's something that stuck with me from a book from Michael Caine. Uh, acting in the film is the book, and he says on behavior on and off the set, um, no matter what the reason, if you start to scream and shout, you look a fool, and you feel a fool, and you earn the disrespect of everyone. All right. Well, I think that's uh, a great way to end this podcast. Great advice there. Um, Audrey, thank, thank you. you. Michael Caine. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, thank you for quoting him. Um <laughs> Dude, thank you so very, very much for um, being on the show today. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. And, um, well, uh, I hope we get to uh, talk again soon about uh, what you think about the high five. And uh, I will definitely keep bugging you uh, with all those questions. Yeah, thank you very much, too. I really enjoyed that, too. And, um, yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to the next encounters. Servus. Servus. In case you were wondering, Servus is the universal way to say hi and bye in Bavaria. And that concludes today's episode of the Focus Polar at Work podcast. 
Thank you so much for listening and thanks again to Outlil for sharing his wisdom with us. If you have any questions or feedback or if you'd like to be a guest on the pod yourself, please send us an email at info at focuspolaratwork.com. If you haven't yet, also please sign up to the Focus Polar at Work forum and become part of the community. And if you like the podcast, please subscribe and leave us a review as that will help us be seen by other ACs and camera folks around the world. Thank you, and I hope I'll catch you on the next episode of the Focus Polar at Work podcast.